So today I'm here to talk to you about the future. Um, it's an interesting challenge right now to talk about the future because what have, has happened the last couple of months basically leads people to believe that you cannot predict the future. And I think it's actually true that we can't predict the future. And I'll tell you a minute what that means for me. Uh, some people could, like Alvin Toffler or Arthur C. Clarke or maybe Ray Kurzweil. But I'll tell you a minute what that means for me. I think the most important thing I want to get started with is, is that we're seeing in the world around us that these devices are now becoming our second brain. Right? This, is, this is where we keep all the stuff that we don't keep in here. Right? So dating, for example, now is a major thing on these devices. Money, digital money. Banking, of course, contacts, right? everything we keep in here. Uh, many of my friends don't actually know my phone number anymore. They just put the short code, right? So we're starting to relegate stuff to outsource that. Now imagine these machines are going to become, some people estimate, roughly a million times as powerful in 10 years. So you have the power of a supercomputer, of a quantum computer in this box. And you can tell it whatever you wish because it's going to listen to you. I'll show you in a second what that means. And the whole world around us is turning into a really, really powerful change. And so I have two topics I want to discuss. One is that the future really is about observation. It's not about prediction. And the safest way to be safe for that future is to observe what is happening around you. Uh, in China, they say, if you want to know about the future, ask your children. That's so true. Because all of you actually know about the future, just like I try to, but we don't have time. We're busy in the present. So the, the safest way to be good for the future is to actually take the time to observe. The biggest trend we're seeing around us is the convergence of man and machine. Literally the convergence of man and machine. And since you're all in the business of robotics and, and, and manufacturing and various things around these, right, this is a very big topic, very powerful topic. I wrote a book about this, came out two months ago. It's called Technology versus Humanity, and it makes a perfect Christmas present, you know, for, for yourself and for others. Thank you. Right. That was very slick, wasn't it? Now, here's my principle, the way that I work with, with companies, we work with over 200 companies to reinvent themselves for the future. We use this motto, assume less, discover more. Right, this is a really important topic. Um, Again, in China, they say assumptions are the termites of relationships. So you assume something and that you're actually wrong the whole time. You haven't noticed. For example, I worked in the music business for a long time. I was a producer and musician. And then I went on with digital music. And I went to the big record labels, Warner and Sony and Bertelsmann. And I said, there's nothing you can do about people copying music. Because that's what the internet does. It's a giant copy machine. It's technology cannot be stopped unless you unplug the internet. So the music companies went to court and sued 285,000 people in court because they were assuming that they could stop people from downloading. And in the process of that, they lost 74% revenues in the process of denying the possibility of technology. So they went from $35 billion to today roughly about $13 billion in, in revenues in recorded music. It's very important to keep that in mind. Arthur, uh, Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book called Future Shock, which is a great read, 30 years old, he says, in dealing with the future, it's more important to be imaginative than to be right. Obviously, he was not from Germany. Right? <laughs> because 
it's very important to be right and to be perfect. Right? But you know, as far as what you guys are doing in this industry, it's very important to be able to imagine the world in five, seven, ten years. And here's the, the bottom line of this. Humanity will change more in the next 20 years than the previous 300 years. A lot of people think this is far out, but it's probably actually not far out enough. Basically, all around us, science fiction is becoming science fact. I mean, the stuff that robots can do today, mind-boggling. The stuff that computers can do, computers can actually understand our language almost 100% now. Roughly estimated as 18 months before machine uh, language understanding becomes 100%, and then they can speak like us by simulating what we sound like because they have audio and video recordings. That's science fiction. Uh, if you're into that stuff, you watch Black Mirror. You know, Black Mirror is not far removed from reality, actually. Science fiction becoming science fact in many, many ways, and this is really going to be an important decision. This is where politics come in, of course, right? It could be heaven, it could be hell. Well, now that Trump is elected, you know, we, we have less choices, but we'll talk about that later. But this is certainly a big discussion, right? because as our, um, I think uh, William Gibson once said, technology is moral and neutral until you apply it. Now imagine if we're going to have technology that's a million times as powerful as today, once we apply that, our culture and ethics are changing completely. I mean, like, completely all the way down to its core. This is the key curve for tonight, is the exponential curve. Well, of course, if you're in technology, you know what this means, Moore's Law, Metcalf's Law. Moore's Law is kind of ending for chips, as I'm sure you know. But everything else is on that trajectory, basically doubling every 12 to 18 months and halving in cost. Now, here's an important point. We're not at the beginning of the curve anymore. When I started on the internet in 1995, you were doubling 0.01 to 0.02. It's still useless, right? We're at four today. So roughly in 12 to 18 months, twice as much. In seven years, 30 times. 30 times the curve, 1 billion exponential. So the kids of my kids will never know how to drive a car by themselves. Actually drive a car like we do. They will not know what a CD is. They will never see cash. Well, my kids are young still, you know. Uh, they will never get a book. They will never smoke a cigarette because it will be illegal. I mean, we're looking at the world dramatically changing. Here's the problem. If we're expecting things to be linear, we're going to be in deep trouble. Things are no longer linear. Our brain, of course, is linear because we're human. You know, we, don't, we don't get to be exponential no matter what we do. I mean, our brain doesn't work like this. We can't plug in more CPUs. We have to make it work with 40 quadrillion calculations per second. We can't make it, you know, 10 times as much. So that's a very big fit for us, you know, to actually understand this in this convergence of man and machine. And then the other thing that's happening around us, you know, pretty much everything, I live in Switzerland, therefore the cows. Yeah? They are actually connecting the cows in Switzerland now. You know, one reason is that they have electronic milking machines, which I observed the other day, it's mind-boggling, example, the cows actually learn that they can be milked anytime. It's fully automatic. So the cows go to the place for the milking with their radio frequency chip, right? and they go four or five times a day. And they give 20% more milk. 
because they learn how to operate the machine. It changes their behavior. And of course, now you can actually look at all these details, you know, uh, jokingly on the cover of Time magazine, you know, offline is the new luxury, basically. I mean, I'm sure you're with me on this one, right? The mobile phone isn't working, you say, oh God, it's peace and quiet. It's a great promotional thing for tourism. And what's happening, pretty much everything is getting connected, even the pizza is going to come with a drone. I had one the other day in San Francisco, of course, right, uh, where the drone brought the pizza. Now, I get this question a lot, to say, why is this happening now? Why didn't it happen 10 years ago? What makes you so sure it's all happening now, this exponential curve? Right? Well, of course, there's a couple of factors I will share with you on this. First, we have radical interface revolutions. We're not going to go to the computer and type in best sushi in Brussels anymore in a few years. The computer knows who we are. It's going to be uh, invisible in my clothes and wearables and mobile devices. And it will know me like my friend. That's what these companies are working on. The global brain called the global brain. Right? So that's basically happening with augmented reality, which is really geeky now. But you know, already every policeman wants to have a holographic display you know, to see all, all the stuff that happens in front of him, and doctors, of course. Hyperconnectivity. We're going to add three billion people to the internet in the next five years. Three billion. Imagine all the stuff that they will do, right? and that they're going to invent, and that you can sell to them. Right? Advances in science, technology, engineering, deep learning, quantum computing, which is early but looks reachable within 10 years. Energy revolution. We're just about here to say that pretty much the price of solar has dropped 97% in 10 years. Now next is batteries. Once we have solar soft and batteries, it basically means abundant energy, 20 years. Which is important for computing, right? Because you need lots and lots of juice to run those machines. <laughs> and many more triggers. So this is really changing the way. It's a very important image to keep in mind. If you're in the, in the oil business today, I hope you're not, because you're heading for, heading for the same place in the music business. Basically today, 84% of the energy business is coal, nuclear, and fossil fuel, 84%. Basically the only game in town. But you know the future is 20 years away, it's over. Right? There's going to be, of course, you're going to use oil, there'll be some cars left, like our fancy sport cars. Right? In 20 years, we can cover the energy needs of the world with renewable energy. That's more or less an accepted fact. Now, what do you do when you're in this business? Well, you have to work on two strategies. One is today, which is oil and gas, and the other one is tomorrow. So all the oil companies have announced transition plans. Shell and BP and ExxonMobil. Even the Emirates in Saudi Arabia have announced plans to transition to I don't know, golf courses, I guess, something. But to go beyond this. Now, you can see reality like this, as OPEC does. This is the OPEC chart. So if you're in the business of oil, you see the world differently. Uh, you're basically saying, OK, people are always going to need oil and gas. You can see this graph here saying that it's going to go on forever. And here's the reality, right? solar. The red curve is when solar becomes economically viable as a substitute, 20 years. Uh, Toyota has already announced they're going to stop making gas engines in 15 years, and they really mean 10 years. So this is the scale I think uh, would be good to think about what works today and what works tomorrow. I call this hybrid thinking. 
So if I ask you a question later and you say, what will your company do in five years? If you make switching systems, you make robotics, whatever you do, that is the key question. Because it's very likely in five years the surrounding context of what you do is 50 to 80% changed. Again, I was in the music business and we sold records. We actually, so I actually sold records. I had 20 records I made in my life. We actually sold those round records. Today, you don't sell music. Music is free. Or, or very cheap. Any Spotify subscribers in the room? Spotify, it's 10 euros for 21 million songs. How much did we pay for a record 15 years ago? 25 euros for 12 songs. So the world is changing as a context. It's very important. Here are some of the things I call the mega shifts. If we master those, then we can understand the future. I will not explain all of them because we'll be here at midnight. Uh, but those are the key trends, and not just digitization. That's just the first one. So let me go for the obvious one, datafication. Anything that used to be between people is now a data stream. Your doctor writes on the iPad, that goes to the cloud. He saves everything there. Do you go to the store to buy a hiking boot? The hiking boot connects to the internet, the latest thing. Right? I mean, datafication, LinkedIn, you guys are on LinkedIn? All our work relationships are now datafied. LinkedIn has sold that to Microsoft very successfully. So datafication is a major thing. If you don't datafy, you can't use the next one, which is cognification. That means to make data intelligent. These are the two key things. So one is you get good data, and the other one, you make it intelligent. And this is a big problem, of course, in, in, uh, in machines and connecting old machines like to sensors and so on, that we don't have the sources. Anticipation, which means prediction. I mean, this is what all the... Uh, the uh, the big logistics companies are now doing. They're saying, we're going to predict demand for logistics a week or two ahead, and we can save 40% of energy in the meantime from this. Smart cities, smart farming, smart logistics, smart ports. Virtualization, putting stuff up in the cloud that used to be real. Right? Pharma companies are doing, now doing what's called cloud biology. So you no longer have the experiment in the lab. You simulate it in the cloud times a billion. And then you only do the final one in the lab. So these things are happening pretty much around the world. And of course, you know the fourth industrial revolution. This is really part of this idea of the mega shifts colliding. Robots are basically going to be as normal as cell phones. When you think about a world where a robot or software or an intelligent digital assistant is like a person. That's the world that is emerging in front of us. Now, that is 90% positive because we can do all kinds of interesting things. It does have a couple of side effects, which I'll talk about shortly. Uh, and we'll need to figure out what to do. It's, a, it's going to be a tsunami of automation. The agriculture industry is a great example. Went from roughly in the US 65%, today less than 2% work in farming. Pizza robots. Well, robots are not going to make this kind of food anytime soon, but they can make pizzas. So this is basically what we're seeing here. So just a couple of examples, you know, factories, lights out factories, parking garages, uh, games. Uh, and of course, we end up here, right? We end up with superpower. I mean, it's funny that many companies are now saying, essentially, we're going to have the power. One person is going to have the power of a thousand people. 
like a call center. You know, if you're in the call center business, you should think about this. There's roughly 72 million people working in call centers. 98% of them will be replaced by technology. Yeah? This is the low-hanging fruit of technology. So huge changes. Well, basically, this is a certainty that we're going to be able to talk to computers. That's a year or two away. Imagine what kind of difference that would make for a factory. I mean, really talk to a computer, not say on or off, but... Yeah. I, I went to a demo the other day from a new search engine, and you could sit down and you could speak for like 3,000 words if you want. And the search engine would give you an accurate result based on a really intricate... You would say, I want to go at 5 a.m. to San Francisco. I want to avoid the traffic. I don't want to rent this car. I want to rent that car. I want to meet my friend who lives in Sunnyvale and so on. And it would do all that for you. I mean, that is going to be a world that is so fundamentally different. Intelligent digital assistants, IDAs, I will call them IDAs. You know Siri and Cortana, but speaking to machines. So if you're not working on that, that is the next big thing to work on because that's basically what you see with all these applications like Google Home and Amazon Echo and, and so on. And that is controlling devices by speaking. So it's a major change that's coming down the pike. And I always say that because of that, we may very well be the last generation of unaugmented humans. The last generation of people that can work without having those kind of abilities. That's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I don't, you know, we can discuss later, but the fact is that basically, as McLuhan said 40 years ago, it is the framework that changes our lives, not the picture. Well, we have to keep that in mind. Framework means economic circumstance, context, social-political consequences, not just the, the one thing that happens, for example, that we can use social media for marketing or so. Artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, 3D printing. Many of those things have been there forever. Right? You know about artificial intelligence. It went through three huge waves of what was called the winter of AI. Right? Always over-promised, never deliver. This time it's real. And this is the hard thing, right? So if I encourage you to say, just because it didn't happen the last 10 years, that, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, because the circumstance is different. You don't believe that we can have an, a computer with an IQ of 50,000? You're seriously wrong. It's entirely doable. You don't think we can, we can work with the human genome to avoid cancer? We can. It's just a question of how long that will take. That's a different question. But what we see here is basically the picture change, you know, context and it's not just exponential, it's also combinatorial. So all the things amplifying each other. So the smart city makes uh, smart money possible, the Internet of Things drives renewable energy, you know, basically amplifying each other, creating whole different ways of doing things. That's why Uber works and that's why Airbnb works because it's all coming together in a giant mix of possibilities. And nowhere is it going to be more pronounced than in manufacturing. The possibility of doing things differently. That is emerging pretty much everywhere across the board. And the impact of that has te technological and social, societal and, of course, economical consequences. And this is kind of the bottom line. We used to think of technology or business or, or politics or culture as separate circles. So here you would talk about lobbying and politics and laws, yes, okay, but ultimately you're in a separate place. Right? The future is really, we're all in the same place all of a sudden. 
everything you decide has impact on society. We're responsible for automation and jobs. I mean, I tell you, I do about 100 speeches a year. And I do a lot of work for CEOs, trying to help them to understand the future. And the number one thing I hear from every single CEO is to fire as many people as possible using technology. That's the number one thing I hear. Make it more efficient, have less people. That's the main problem. So that's a very big debate about what happens with us on a society level there and whether we should automate everything just because we can because these waves of transformation are now everywhere. Sometimes I say, for example, in the banking business, if you want to know what happens to you, look at the music business. Because they're basically hung out there for 10, 15 years trying to prevent any of that to happen by saying, no, we won't collaborate. Result being is now they're irrelevant, right? I mean, does anybody still know Sony Music? Or if you're a musician, you just go to YouTube. Don't need Sony Music. Maybe you need them for different things. Right? But now there's a new thing the last two years. Now we're finding out it's not enough to be a good American and just bank on disruption. That's what Uber and Dropbox and Airbnb and all these guys have done. You have to actually build a, a system that makes sense. Uber is the best example. Now, Uber has to actually come and say, okay, we're going to create an ecosystem that works with everyone. The driver, the tax people, the leg legislation, right, everything. So uh, I'll come to the end and we'll, we'll have some questions. But basically here, the bottom line is that we're struggling with this because you know, technology is now the driving factor of society. Much bigger than oil and gas or the banks. The technology drives everything. And the technology companies drive everything. I'll show you a slide on this in a second. That's not necessarily a bad thing, except for that machines don't have ethics. They may be able to understand our values by observing us and saying, oh, Gerd is angry, or he feels lonely, or whatever. But they certainly wouldn't understand the meaning of value or purpose or much less you know, sentience or consciousness or murky things like ethics. So that's a real challenge for us because societies without ethics are doomed. Because, you know, what matters between us is actually not the data. We don't value each other by saying that you can deal with lots of data. No customer cares about you just because you have great tech. If you don't have great tech, it's not working, then they care. Right? But otherwise, it's a question of trust. It's about relationships. That's why you're in business, because you have trust and relationships. So it used to be that the question of technology was whether we can make it work. How can we do this? How much will it cost? How much will it take? That question is over, because the answer is we can do whatever. The only question that matters now is what and why. Let's keep in mind that, as many philosophers have said, that technology is not what we seek, it's how we seek. Now, technology is not the purpose of what we're doing, it's, it's a tool. Now, this is a very important distinction that some people tend to forget, that we use technology as, as the purpose. So here's an important question, since we're here in Brussels. Who is mission control for this? Who is mission control for humanity? Well, the answer right now is clear, right? Most of the tech is hosted and invented in Silicon Valley, so that makes the mission control in, in many ways, right? 
and we are subject to U.S. laws, no matter what they come up with. will be interesting to see what happens with that. And right after that is China. So I think it's time that we think about our own mission control, not necessarily our own internet. Right? We have to think about what that means. What do we want? Very important topic. Who's in charge of this? So the Internet of Things, electronic medical records, DNA analysis, artificial intelligence, more powerful than nuclear weapons. Literally. It's very hard to build a nuclear weapon. I haven't tried, but I hear it's hard. I mean, you have to actually have plutonium, right? But to build a weapon that's based on artificial intelligence, it's code, right? That's not difficult. So what do we do about this? And this is a major issue. Yesterday, the European Commission signed off on a German initiative called the Digital Charter of, of Digital Rights. Right? It's sort of the idea of a new uh, Grundgesetz, you know, a basic a law on the future of digital rights. There's a couple of things that you probably can't see from way back there, but it's, it's really pretty interesting in terms of the proposals that's, that's happening there, that we should not allow law enforcement access to private data except for certain circumstances and the prohibition of weapon systems that cannot be deployed automatically, and so on and so on. So it's very interesting to see what happens there, but basically we're entering the age of, di the age of digital ethics. We're entering the time of where we are quite clearly going to have to worry about everything that we do has ethical implications. Everything. And that's also a good thing because I think here in Europe we can use that as a brand. Because we actually care. The purpose of technology is not to build more technology, but is to be customer friendly and to create something good for the customer. The Internet of Things is the best example. Can you imagine a situation where every single data point about you and your company is measured and tracked because you can save gas? Or where everything is predicted based on, and basically nobody is really in charge of that? I mean, people could take your DNA and clone you. Anybody could. That's 10 years away. So that world needs to have some mission control, you know, somebody that says, okay, this waves of disruption we take the blockchain, which is a big discussion these days, and the idea of a peer-to-peer -peer encrypted network that is essentially uncontrolled, or cognitive computing, IBM's big story, machines that can think. You may think this is funny, uh, machines that can think, but it's quite real. I had a conversation with a machine that can think the other day. Uh, she gave me a 10-minute speech about the future of Europe. Yeah, it was actually quite good. And then I, I uh, well, of course, it, there was no prediction involved. It was quite fact-based. It was very interesting, though. And then I asked her about this concept of the United States of Europe. And then she said, Mission, command not understood. <laughs> because it doesn't exist. Right? It's an idea. <laughs> so in this world, we're looking at a situation that is basically computing is going from programming and being programmed the programmable systems area to the cognitive systems area, machines that can think. This is just now happening. I mean, if you're in the robotics business or manufacturing or wherever, these machines are going to learn eventually in the next five years at a speed that is so far beyond our own understanding, we will have no clue what they're doing. The best example is Google DeepMind playing against the world champion in Go. 
Go is the most complicated game in the world, 3.5 trillion possible moves. It's a strategy game. And the computer wasn't programmed to play the game. He observed the game on the internet, then he went to simulate in a huge cloud a billion times, and then he did a few more other human trials, and he won against the world champion, 4 to 1, this year. Imagine that system could look at the entire operations if you're a telecom company, your network operations, and just look at all the data and then run huge simulation and then say, you know what, get rid of 10,000 people, I know what to do. That's all going to be quite likely in the near future. You know, basically thinking machines, cognitive computing, deep learning. And you know what, I think this is actually a good thing. Because as good as these machines already are, there's a huge difference between the reality of what we do, which involves a holistic approach to problems right, and conversations, than what they do. So these machines will substitute our routine. That could be painful depending on how much routine you do. But at the same time, it could be liberating. I mean, it would be hard for a truck driver to be liberated from his job. That would be a problem, of course, because it's pretty much all routine. But we're facing a situation of future like this. You know, this is the CEO of Google saying a couple of months ago, we're going from mobile first to artificial intelligence first. Computing will be universally available. Above else, it will be intelligent. This is telling you where things are going. First in the consumer space, and then in B2B. Machines that will understand what, that, what they're supposed to be doing and tell you how they could be doing it better and to reinvent their own future. So basically, how will intelligent machines impact your $10 trillion global manufacturing business? I think for the most part, again, it's positive, but you can imagine the business model changes behind this. I mean, Google currently makes $3.2 billion a month on these tiny AdWords where you type in sushi in Brussels. $3.2 billion. Their idea is to make $10 billion a month by predicting that you're going to look for sushi in Brussels and delivering you that basically anytime, anywhere. So that's how the world is changing in a very large way um, that we can take advantage of. So basically, if you wondered about this, you know, it's years, not decades away. So if you're in the mid-50s like me, you're going to see it, right? You can't retire before that happens. Sorry. Yeah. The convergence of man and machine is imminent. If you have kids, you've got to think about this. I think it's actually a really great thing once we get around to understanding what it really means. Right? That doesn't mean we're going to be substituted by machines. Right? The fact is actually this. It's the exponential datafication, automation, cognification, you know, the mega shifts I mentioned, of labor, manufacturing, and equipment is inevitable. It's as inevitable as music is in the cloud. If you wish that people would buy your CD as a musician, that, that can be a wish, but it's not reality. Reality is we can make money on the cloud. We can make money do, doing things differently. Because, as Paul Sappho says, a good futurist colleague of mine, he says, we should not confuse a clear view with a short distance. In other words, these machines will add great value to what we're doing. It will be a long time before they can do what we are doing. And that, we have to understand this. Right? There's a lot of irrational fear about computers either taking us over or squashing us or killing us, destroying us, taking all of our jobs. Right? But this is actually something that we're going to see in the near future. And we have to 
think about how far that will take us. We're, we're now in a, entering the age of tech. I mentioned that earlier. If you look on the left side, 2006, the biggest companies in the world were, were uh, oil companies and banks. And now on the right, technology companies, data companies. Uh, the new currency of the world is data. It's good for you because you're obviously right there. Right? Data is the new oil. I said this 15 years ago, and nobody understood what I was saying. But data is a driving force of society now. We have to understand how to use it. And this is the question here in Brussels, of course, if data is the new oil, should it be regulated like oil? Well, the answer is yes, of course. Not like oil, but I mean, if data is the most powerful driver of our society, then we have to think about what the rules are. Right now, there really are very few rules. And I think the more safe we feel about this, the better. So exponential technologies will be a huge challenge to a societal renegotiation of our social contract. I mean, imagine right now all of us are gaining one-third of a year in longevity every year. The kids of my kids will get to live 100 to 120 in average. This is a fact. What will that do for social security, for work? I mean, it's great to live longer, but am I going to be in retirement for 50 years? And who will pay for that? So we're going to see things like huge debates about privacy, anonymity, feeling polluted by information, machines taking our jobs, and this whole question of how does it relate to what we value as people? The bottom line is 95% of what we are cannot be automated. We actually don't work like this. We don't work with zeros and ones. What people are really good at is the Morovetch paradox, right? We're very good at what machines can never do, and machines are very good with what we can never do. And that's kind of how it's shaping up in this future. The challenge is this, I think, for us. The technological possibilities versus the human needs. That is a huge challenge for us. And that's why we need government, right? That's why we need good government to figure out how to make a balance. A society without balance, which is in many ways what's happening in China and the US, that could be difficult if taken to the extreme. That's clearly something that we have to think about. I call this algorithms and androrhythms, you know, human things, androrhythms that are playing out there. So here's a couple of tips, and then we'll, we'll go to some questions. Um, first of all, I would say we have to be proactive. We don't want to stifle innovation. That, that is quite clear, because we have done that already too much. <laughs> but also, we have to be a little bit precautionary, which means looking ahead. We shouldn't necessarily allow, allow the CERN lab in Bern to make a black hole just to figure out what it looks like, because a black hole you cannot undo. We cannot undo artificial intelligence that's connected to 150 million computers. That we couldn't. So we need to have a mixed approach of this. As I like to say, embrace technology, but don't become it. Well, this is a very different approach. Embracing technology means using it, but not actually becoming like technology. I mentioned this earlier, it's what we seek, but how we seek. And the final point is important. Efficiency should not be more important than humanity. This is a really cultural question. A lot of people would argue, who cares? People are inefficient. 
therefore we don't need them. I hear this all the time. There are people, in fact, saying we should have politicians that are artificial intelligent machines. Because they would be perfect. They could not be corrupted. They could not be drawn into discussions too much. So I think ultimately this is really about this idea of saying, you know, efficiency is not what we're looking for. Efficiency is just something that the CFO likes. You're going to be 100% efficient, you are useless because you're a commodity. You're just an engine, you know, a giant machine. And ultimately, it comes down to you know, human flourishing. That's really what we want. That's what we're all inventing stuff for, is that we make people happy with what we're inventing. And finally, there's an important point, you know, as we're all connecting everything, in this society, security and safety becomes hugely important. There are estimates saying that roughly 90% of all military spending in 15 years is digital. The next war is digital. And it, it could happen anywhere. Right now, we're still at the level of other things. I mean, clearly, we're going to need to think about this. Do we need a technology non-proliferation treaty? Like we have in, with atomic power, nuclear power? Who's allowed to do this? If we have genetic engineering to beat cancer, can we make a super soldier? Yes, we can. And people are working on it. So that's something we have to think about. You know, Basically, that becomes mission critical to agree on what the rules are. And that's very important for us, because now we're heading into a world, as you can see here on this, on this uh, yellow curve, roughly, uh, estimates are saying, roughly in 10 years, we'll have the first machine that can beat a human in every possible cognitive function. Some people will say it takes five years. So every single p uh, possible cognitive function, that's not the case today. Huh? We're, still, we're still down here at this point. Yeah. But in the future, you know, just in roughly 20 years, we'll be at the point where one computer has a cognitive function of all human brains. All human brains. I think, again, great opportunity if we can control it, but how will we keep humans in the loop? Who's in charge of that? That's why we need the digital market. That's why we need to think about those things like the digital charter, you know, to make sure it's actually fruitful. And that's why we need to ask the question, what should or what should not be automated? For example, I happen to believe that driving is not a human right, you know, even though I'm from Germany. But driving a car is something we can live without. You know, it's kind of a pain because I like to have fun driving a car. But, you know, I can live without driving. But I don't want to live without deciding if my wife should have this baby or that baby, depending on what the machine says about DNA. That's a whole different, that, that I don't want to automate. And I don't want to automate my news, because I read the news on Facebook, and be manipulated by a Facebook engine. That is not a good automation. So we have to think about, you know, what is that whole story? Are we going to end up like this? I mean, many of you are in the, in the equipment business, the dump trucks, right? Useless humans on a dump truck? I don't think that will be our future. I think our future will be, as we can see on this uh, slide here, huh, useless routine that we're going to give to computers. We have to decide what that routine is right? and what we do instead. I mean, you, you can see on the slide here from The Economist, non-routine cognitive work is exploding already. This is US numbers. And non-routine manual work is also exploding. Carpenters, electricians, 
Anything in the middle, diving. The bad word is routine. I mean, you're in the business of automating routine, so you, you know what I'm saying. Right? That is a huge opportunity, but that's where it's going. So I'll come to the end. We'll have a discussion. Uh, bottom line is anything that can be digitized or automated will be. That's as certain as music has moved from the record to the cloud. That's digital Darwinism, basically. The reverse is also true. Anything that cannot be digitized or automated becomes much more valuable. And what is that? Well, it's 95% of what we do. Empathy, compassion, trust, relationships, imagination, intuition, negotiation. That's what we do. Well, some of us. So I have to think about this for a second. You know, if you have kids, you know what I'm saying here. Don't let them learn anything with a routine. <laughs> so I think this is a way of thinking about what we do, for example, in manufacturing or engineering in general. It's quite clear programming, for example, will be automated. Already is being automated. The value of your company in the future will not just be technology, it'll be what the humans are doing, the extraordinary humans. David Bowie, rest in peace, said something really amazing years ago, and, and he was quite a, an entrepreneur on digital music. He says, the future belongs to those who can hear it coming. I think this is the most important thing that we can learn, is if we understand the future as to what's shaping up, we'll always find a way to reinvent. I think we're very good at that, actually. The biggest problem we're having is we're not paying attention to that future. We're not listening. Thanks very much for listening.